The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Providing insight and resources for your spiritual journey. Unity Online Radio. Today's episode has been made possible through the generous support of Bright Peak Financial, an award-winning not-for-profit supporting Christians on their journey to financial strength. Go to brightpeakfinancial.com to make your dream happen. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with host Victoria Moran. Victoria is an author, inspirational speaker, and a certified holistic health counselor and vegan lifestyle coach. She's here to entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Now, let's get this party started. Here's your host, Victoria Moran. Hey, everybody, and happy Midsummer's Day, if you're listening live. It's going to be hot here in New York City, way up in the 90s, as I look at the forecast for the coming week, in which I will host Main Street Vegan Academy class number 16, with people from all over America, from Canada, from Puerto Rico, and a lovely Jane woman coming all the way from India from Main Street Vegan Academy. I feel so honored and blessed to get to do this every now and then, four times a year. So uh, take a look over there at MainStreetVegan.net if you think that that might be something fun for you. Something else fun coming up, the first plant-based TV talk show is going to premiere next week. That will be July 27th on FYI, which is one of the A&E cable channel stations. So it's 7.30 a.m. here in New York, so you can check local listings and look for Plant-Based by Noxica. That's N-A-F-S-I-K-A. Noxica is a lovely woman from Quebec who's going to be talking to all sorts of fascinating folks right there on the TV. So make a note of that on your calendar, if you would. Now, after the break today, we are going to get very serious. We're going to be talking about a really serious topic, and that is abortion. We'll be speaking with Sherry uh, uh, Kolb and uh, Michael Dorff, the authors of Beating Hearts, Abortion and Animal Rights. So do stay tuned. That's going to be very interesting. But before we get serious, let's talk fun and food and great good times with our first guest, Brian L. Patton. You know this chef, cookbook author, and multimedia personality as the sexy vegan. And he's been at it for nearly a decade inspiring a loyal audience as he presents home-style vegan eats in his fun and freewheeling style. He's the author of The Sexy Vegan Cookbook, 
extraordinary food from an ordinary dude, but oh my gosh, he's not ordinary, wait till you meet him, and also the sexy vegan's happy hour at home, and he's doing something really exciting right now, he's bringing out micro books, he'll tell us about that, and he'll also tell us about the little micro vegan at his house and <laughs> being a vegan dad. Hey, Brian, welcome to the show. Hey, Victoria. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really glad I'm in the first segment. The second segment is way too serious for me. Well, we, we need to lighten up and then we can get serious. We, I think we that's need to kind have of some balance. Yeah. You know, it's true. And that's how it is, I think, with being vegan because we know about a lot of things that go on that are really ugly, and yet we also need to go out and enjoy ourselves so we can deal with it like you enjoyed yourself last night. I did. I did. I was at a, I was at a big party. It was a, a, a cookbook release party for my good friend Jackie Soban uh, from the, the blog Vegan Yak Attack. She has her first uh, book out. It's called uh, Vegan Bowl Attack. Now I'm, now I'm promoting her book as well, so good. Lucky, for, lucky for Jackie. But uh, – but yeah, so, uh, you know, and we just had a great collection of all the sort of vegan online personalities were there, like Eco Vegan Gal, Jason Robel, and, uh, I don't know, I'll, I don't know, I can name drop all day, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, and it's, it's one of those really fun events, um, where we get to enjoy food and we get to just sort of talk about the vegan experience with a bunch of other vegans because, Normally in our lives, we're not with a bunch of other vegans all the time. So we don't get to sort of, uh, you know, compare notes as to how our days go and, and what kind of things we, we, uh, you know, we come up against on a daily basis. Yeah, it's wonderful to be yeah. in a city where there are a lot of vegans and where you can do that even some of the time. I think for other people, the Internet has been such a godsend and probably the reason why veganism is as big as it is right now. And that's really where you have your roots in all this. Tell us a little of your history. Certainly. So, the you know, the sexy vegan, as I sillily called myself, um, it was sort of just this silly idea I had. Uh, this was, you know, in 2006 or something. A friend of mine was telling me about this website called YouTube. And I was like, wait, I could do what? I could put a video and people can see it? That's crazy. So I thought, all right, I'll do a silly little cooking video uh, and uh, I'll, I'll call it The Sexy Vegan because I think people will click on it because they'll be expecting like, you know, not me, <laughs> someone who's, you know, svelte and maybe possibly in a bikini. But uh, but no, they got me a chubby guy and, and I made them guacamole for my very first uh, sort of cooking show episode on uh, on YouTube and it just sort of it, it got it got a lot of attention this first uh, uh, video because it was so stupid and silly and kind of vulgar I won't use any vulgar language today Victoria um, but uh, but it was just sort of the, like a a, a a parody of a cooking show that I sort of grew up watching all the cooking shows on on Food Network and stuff so it was just uh it was just this silly thing, and it just got a lot of lot of attention. And then people were like, "Hey, make more!" And I'm like, "Okay, I'll make more." And then so I just kept making uh, videos and kept, you know, continuing the the popularity of the sexy vegan evolved. I I got myself a MySpace page, and that's when I know that I had uh, really made it. Is when I started to get MySpace friends. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but then at a certain point, um, after a few years of doing it, you know, it was just like a side project, just like a fun thing in addition to my regular life, and a cookbook. Uh, I mean, a, a book publisher contacted me, uh, better, um, and uh, and they wanted me to write a cookbook. So I did that, and then I wrote a couple cookbooks, and now here I am, ten years later, and I'm talking to the great Victoria Moran. It is quite an honor to be here. Well, it's really an honor to talk to you, and I've been on your podcast too. Yes, Tell you us have about been. that. What, what's yes. your show, and where do people find it? So, at a certain point, I decided, hey, I like listening to podcasts. I like listening to talk radio and that kind of stuff. So, um, maybe I'll do a podcast. It really sort of started um, out of in a. If this sounds ridiculous, but it started out of laziness um, because. Uh, I would, uh, you know, I would make my lunch and I take a picture of it and I post it on a Facebook or something like that, and people say, hey. Well, where's the recipe for this? I want the recipe. And I didn't feel like writing out a whole recipe. So I was like, all right, if that happens, I'm just going to go record a quick thing, you know, with my voice, say, oh, I use this, I did this, and that's it. And then upload it to iTunes and whatever. And, uh, and then that'll, that'll be easy because I'm feeling too lazy to actually write stuff down. But then as the, 
as the podcast, which I call Sexy Vegan Ray Didio, as that sort of evolved and got more interesting and I started to add more things, I realized that doing a podcast or a radio show like you do is not for the lazy. It is a tremendous amount of work. <laughs> um, but uh, but I, I started to really want to focus on food and because there's a lot of podcasts and other things that that focus on like vegan lifestyle or animal rights and 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 those are all it's all great and everything and they, and they also hit on food but I want to just be about food I'm a chef by trade so I wanted to have this sort of as we were talking this sort of lighter side of veganism where I know there's already people doing the good work on the uh, uh, animal rights front and on the vegan lifestyle front um, but we, there was a hole that I saw needed filling talk about food. So I started interviewing cookbook authors and just sort of prominent people in the vegan world. And, and, uh, so I've been doing that for the last, uh, the, the podcast has been a weekly podcast for about the last year and a half or so, uh, that I've been really doing it quite regularly. And you do it really well, perhaps because you are a chef, you really know how to bring out the best in food people, because I find it limiting sometimes to talk about food on a medium that is just audio, that when you're mm-hmm. not actually seeing the food, yeah. smelling the food, tasting the food, touching the food, to really get those words to impart what the person has to share, that's that's tricky. And so it's cool that somebody with a food podcast is a food person. And how <laughs> yes. did you get to be a food person? Did you always know how to cook even before you were vegan? Oh. Good God, no, no way. In fact, I, you know, and I, I'm from a, a mostly Italian family. I mean, my last name is Patton. It's Irish, but you know, I have Caparellis and Panzarellas and, and and all these Italian names in my family. And uh, I grew up big Sunday dinners. You know, we go to the church, we then we go to Nana's house, and there'd be homemade pasta for sixteen people and all this stuff. And for some reason, this love of cooking skipped over my mom. <laughs> Skipped right over my mom and my dad, and they did not like to cook. So I had takeout pizza and, you know, everything convenience foods growing up. So my mom did not cook, and my dad did not cook. So, um, I mean, they did a little bit, but not nothing like my grandparents did, or like all of my aunts and uncles and everybody else in my family besides my parents. Sorry. I'm throwing them under the bus, but it's true. But well, they did uh, so many other wonderful things. They did so many other wonderful things. I, I can't take any of that away from them. But uh, but it wasn't until like after college that I actually I didn't even know how to cook spaghetti. Like it was embarrassing. Like senior year of college, my roommate was like, Okay, can you make this spaghetti while I do this? I'm like, What what? Do I put it in the water first and then turn on the heat or what do I do? Like I honestly did not know. It was embarrassing. Um, so then after college, I just, I, I, um, I stumbled upon some like local, it was like a local access cooking show. It wasn't even food network. It was just like the local guy in my little town. This like, this like portly Italian guy, uh, chef Lou who has since passed. He, he passed uh, about a year ago. I was very sad, but, uh, anyway, he made this really simple pasta dish. I was like, Oh, well that doesn't look so hard. Um, so that, that, that was just my little spark of sort of, uh, the first time I like ever cooked something that wasn't from a box with a plastic seal over top of it. Oh, and, and, and at least it was true to your heritage. It was, it was, it was. And, and so just from there on, I just got more and more interesting. I'm like, Ooh, I wonder what else I could do. And I really just actually watched a lot of cooking shows and just got ideas from them as to what to do. And then, uh, at a certain point after years of just sort of experimenting at home, uh, I thought, okay, I wonder what it's like to do this for a living. Uh, so I went and got my first like little job in a little restaurant. And then, you know, from then on, I, you know, became, uh, I've been working in the food business for about 10 years. I've been, it's been about the same amount of time that I've been vegan. Uh, I've been working in the, in the food industry. Good for you. I love people's stories. So you now have micro books, a series. <laughs> okay. Yes. Tell us, tell us what that is and okay. how we can get one. It is a thing that I have invented out of thin air. Basically, um, at the beginning of this summer, um, I, I was I was getting overwhelmed. I, as we mentioned, I have this little toddler. He's two years old. And, and I work from home a lot, uh, a large part of the week. And I have like a weird schedule because I work on the weekends. It's all weird. But anyway, so I'm home during the week. 
and uh, and with the podcast, and I did a lot of social media stuff. I did a lot of live broadcasts on Periscope, a lot of Snapchat. You know, I was immersed for the past like four to five years, just in all aspects of show social media. I had written the books. Uh, once I had the kid, I kind of did not have time to write a full on cookbook anymore. Um, and even like the podcast was starting to get you know burden uh, be a burden with all of the other like regular life like not <laughs> not uh you know vegan sexy vegan related stuff so i thought mm, you know i'm gonna take the summer off from doing the podcast and then i thought ooh, maybe i'll take the whole summer off of social media altogether um and then i got really happy and giddy and i was like okay if if my initial reaction to this <laughs> decision is to be giddy then it's probably the right decision i need a break um but and i was also curious to see what my brain would do when not occupied by staring at my phone all day, posting my lunch and writing descriptions and, and interviewing people, which I love doing all that stuff. And I wanted to see what, what would happen if these things changed. So I came up with this idea. It just sort of popped in my head of a micro book. And it's really all, it's really just because that's all I have time for. It is a, it was a cookbook, uh, quote unquote, it's an ebook with just one recipe. And I thought, Hey, if people will download one song, from an album for 99 cents on iTunes, maybe they would want just one recipe, the best version of this freaking recipe that, that can possibly be. So I take, I find a recipe that I want to make and I just, I test it into the ground, every single aspect of it. And then I, I'm putting it together into this little ebook. Um, it'll be, uh, I, I'm, it's, I'm still working on it. It's, it's almost done. I just have to sort of do the layout and some light editing and stuff, but it will be out soon. Uh, towards the uh, you know in the end of the summer or so, and I, I and it's just sort of this experiment, and I just made up the word micro book because it's this little tiny sliver of a book. It's just like one recipe because sometimes you get a cookbook and you only end up making one recipe out of it. Oh, totally! I'm so, looking at a cookbook right now that I've had for 20 years, and I keep it for a recipe right. for salad dressing. You have <laughs> hey, you have that one. There's that one go-to recipe in that book. Well, I'm going to save a bunch of trees (laughs) and save everybody time by just giving them a a PDF download with the one recipe that they would cook out of the – if this was in some other big book, this is the recipe that they would cook out of it. So the the first volume that I'm doing, um, it's a – it's a it's a a Neapolitan-style pizza that you can make at home because it's very difficult to mimic uh, true Neapolitan-style pizzas uh, at home uh, because – Usually they're cooked in an 800 degree oven and it's certain type of flour and this certain type of crust and, and this certain type of sauce. So I've done all the research and done all the testing and that's what's going to be the first uh, book and it's called Sexy's Best uh, is what the series is, is called. I just love it. Absolutely love it. And you've got homemade mozzarella for this pizza. It sounds so good. Yep. Now you say not only can you get this book before its official release, but you can also get it for free. Okay. At sexyvegan.com. That's correct. So basically up until the point where it's, uh, where it gets released, um, I'm going to offer it for free. So anybody goes up and signs up at the sexyvegan.com, you just put your email in, you're added to the list. Um, you will get it for free. Uh, when the, uh, when the book is released, then, uh, it will be like 99 cents. It will be very low price. Um, but, uh, but if you want to pay zero cents, uh, all you have to do is go sign up at sexyvegan.com. A little thing will pop up. Just pick it, put in your email address and you'll be on the list. When I release the book, you will be the first to get it and you will not have to pay anything. And, uh, I, this is also a self-governing thing, uh, because it makes me want to, uh, finish the book in a timely manner. So not everybody's getting it for free. <laughs> well, very um, good. Well, we're getting it for free. And, well, uh, of course you pizza are. tonight. This is so cool. Yes. So, oh, our time is up. I can't believe what? it. But I know. Let's just take 30 seconds and okay. just tell us what it's like to be a vegan dad, what it's like like to have a two-year-old running around. I mean, he runs around, he climbs around, he flies around, he jumps around. It's crazy. He's got a ton of energy. I don't know if that's from being vegan. I'm sure some people would say that. I don't know. But but it's not. It's so not difficult. At the beginning, I was doing a bunch of research. I'm like, okay, he's supposed to get this much protein, this much this, this much that. And I wanted to be precise just, you know, so that other family couldn't criticize. Ooh, he's looking a little this. Is he getting enough of that? Um, and one, what I found is after I did the research, 
I found out that he was already getting all the stuff just by the things I was feeding. I'm like, oh, this is not work. I just feed him the food that I eat and he's going to get all of his nutrients and vitamins and stuff. And it's not that hard. So I, I started, I started it like as though it was going to be this hard thing that I got to really keep track of. It ended up being. He already gets enough calcium and protein and all of this stuff. So it's very easy. And he's just a toddler now. He's not really in school. So I don't have to, I'm not yet dealing with the what happens at school stuff. Um, but, uh, but it's really not as daunting as I thought it was originally going to be. And I think a lot of people think it might be. Oh, well, congratulations. It's Thank a you. great adventure. I mean, I did yeah, it with my is. daughter back in the eighties. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a little challenging, but oh my gosh, what a wonderful thing to have this lovely vegan adult in the world. I know. And, and with this and, and does great things. And they all already love animals and all this. Mm-hmm. And then thinking about like forcing them, you know, introducing them to eating chicken. Like I see my friends doing mm-hmm. stuff. I'm like, that, how do you get a, like, I wonder how a kid gets his head around that when he's like, I love chickens. I see them in my little books and stuff. And now I'm eating them. Like, I wonder you know, I can't imagine what that's like. I don't really remember <laughs> when I was a kid, but it's got to be you confusing. Know, a, a lot of kids these days are just not taking it. They're like, yeah. oh, okay, chicken is chicken. No way. I think right, we're going right. to see an epidemic of that, and your son can lead the way. <laughs> yes, Find yes. Brian L. Patton at The Sexy Vegan absolutely everywhere. Website, yes. uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, The Sexy Vegan. The sexy Look vegan. for those books with covers. Order the fabulous pizza recipe for free. Sexy's or if best. you're listening to this in a year, you'll get Sexy's Best for 99 cents. That's you it. really can't beat it. Can Brian, I? thank you so much. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for all you do in the world. Let's stay in touch. An absolute pleasure, Victoria. Thank you. Thank you. And everybody else, stay with us. We're going to be talking with Sherry Cole and Michael Dorff about beating hearts. We'll be back. Online Radio has helped you grow spiritually through programs like this one. Please consider supporting this online radio programming. Visit www.unity.fm and click on Donate Now. Thank you for helping us continue to serve as the voice of an awakening world. So there I was, staring at a closet overflowing with clothes, practically bursting at the seams in their polyester prison. I had ten minutes left to get dressed, and the stress was kicking in. Are turtlenecks still a thing? What about rhinestones? Where did I get this? Oh, my leggings from 1987. Ah, the scarves are attacking me. Sound familiar? Declutter your life and your closet with the Simple Living Challenge. It's a free 14-day challenge with powerful daily assignments to help you find more balance, freedom, and joy in life. Just go to SimpleLivingChallenge.com to sign up. Ooh, a cowboy hat. What if you could experience vibrant health, help heal the planet, and be a great friend to God's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Authors Victoria and Adair Moran say you can do this easily, affordably, and deliciously in their new book, Main Street Vegan. Everything you need to know to eat healthfully and live compassionately in a real world. Loaded with practical tips, straightforward information, and fabulous recipes, Main Street Vegan will help you on your journey toward a plant-based diet. The perks include more energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, feeling younger as you grow older, and maybe even a boost to your spiritual life. Purchase Main Street Vegan from BN.com, Amazon.com, or your favorite bookseller. listening to Main Street Vegan with Victoria Moran. If you have questions or comments about today's topic or any other area of interest, we invite you to follow Victoria underscore Moran on Twitter or email her at MainStreetVegan at UnityOnlineRadio.org. 
Now, back to Main Street Vegan. Welcome back, lovely listeners. I just want to draw your attention to what's happening on the Main Street Vegan blog this very week. It's called An Omnivorous Septuagenarian in a Vegan Home. This is a post from uh, Carmela Lanai. You know her as part of the food duo. And her mom was convalescing and needed to stay with Carmela and Carlo for an extended period of time. And Carmela actually interviewed her mother for the piece to see what it was like for this woman in her 70s, who's always been an omnivore, to live with vegans and eat some different kinds of foods and be exposed to some different kinds of views. It's full of love, I will tell you that, and also very helpful. I think sometimes we feel people are supposed to understand us, and it's really interesting sometimes to try to understand them, too. So, speaking of understanding, and speaking of a topic that has people very emotional on both sides, and something that I think... Everyone alive today needs to look at and come to some sort of decision about, and that is abortion. Or in the case of the book that we're going to be looking at today, the people listening to this program, Abortion and Animal Rights. That's the subtitle of the new book by Sherry Kolb and Michael Dorff, Beating Hearts. Michael is the Robert S. Stevens Professor of Law at Cornell Law School and teaches courses in constitutional law, federal courts, and comparative constitutional law, among others. He's published many articles and books. His wife, Sherry F. Cold, is the Charles Evans Hughes Scholar and Professor of Law at Cornell Law School and teaches courses in constitutional criminal procedure, evidence, and animal rights. She's published books and articles, including, most relevantly, Mind If I Order the Cheeseburger and Other Questions People Ask Vegans. She was on the show before with that wonderful book. And actually, I don't know if you know this, Sherry, I have added that as required reading for students coming into Main Street Vegan Academy because I think it's so important Yeah, that we know how to answer those questions. Michael and Sherry have been vegan for 10 years and are raising two vegan daughters and three vegan dogs. Welcome to the program. Thanks. It's so great to be here. Yes, thank you. Well, it's wonderful to have both of you on. I saw you both at Vegetarian Summerfest a couple of weeks ago. That was quite the vacation. (laughs) I always love it. So this topic, oh, my gosh, I think you've thought about it and talked about it for a while. I believe a question about this topic is in Mind If I Order the Cheeseburger, yeah. What what caused you to say, okay, the time is right, we're going to write a book? Well, we had encountered the question really from both quarters. People who were um, pro-life on the question of um, abortion would say, well, you must be um, pro-life also if you are in favor of protecting animals because animals' lives can't matter more than humans' lives. And then at the same time, People who are vegan would say, well, um, you know, would, would suggest that people who are pro-life ought to be vegan if they are in favor of life because the life of an animal who's already developed and, and has feelings and so on must be more important than the life of a zygote um, or an embryo. So this was a question that from both sides was coming um, and people would, would raise it, and we thought it was really worth delving into and thinking about systematically. And, and each of us had thought about um, uh, and written about abortion independently. Um, Sherry's first book is actually about uh, women's equality, and I'd written a bunch of uh, uh, books and articles about uh, abortion in the you know outside of the animal context. So we had that. Uh, you know that that background to draw on when we started thinking about this as vegans. Exactly, and even one one of our daughters actually would say, "Well, if people are against abortion, they must be vegan, right?" And you know, of course, the answer is, "Well, not necessarily." But we wanted to think about that. It's so fascinating. I, I think it's that difference, that qualitative difference, that many people perceive 
between humans and animals. I think a lot of it goes back to who has a soul and um, a lot of stuff that you get into in your book. Now, in the book, you make an analogy of uh, animals to both fetuses and to women. Now, that seems like a contradiction, but you present it in a way that isn't. How do you do that? Well, we first, the, the sort of obvious analogy, I think, is between animals and fetuses, that there we have both cases we have a vulnerable being who's innocent and who gets killed, bit people kill them for reasons that don't require, you know, it's not life and death situation, and that people suggest that maybe it's not a person either yet or at all. And so these, that's the analogy between the animal and, uh, and the fetus that, that seems to leap out at us. And, but what we see also is that there is an analogy between the, the animal and the woman because especially the pregnant woman who does not want to be pregnant because like the, um, unhappily pregnant woman, and animals within the animal use industries are um, are exploited against their will, and specifically cows and chick- and chickens, laying hens, are exploited for their reproductive capacities. Just like, a, in a way, a woman who does not want to be pregnant and is forced, if the law were to force her to stay pregnant, is being forced against her will to carry this pregnancy to term and to use her reproductive capacity as a as a mode of subordinating her. So we saw an analogy there as well. And one, one other way of thinking about that um, actually reminds me of uh, something that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had uh, famously done when she was litigating women's rights cases. People know her now as the notorious RBG, the uh, Supreme Court Justice, but her early career was as a women's rights uh, attorney, uh, also while she was a law professor, and she brought as a lawyer the leading cases that ended up establishing the rights of women's equality under the Constitution. But uh, interestingly, in most of those cases, the plaintiffs were men complaining about sex discrimination against them, but in ways that elicited how sex discrimination against women also harms men. Uh, And we begin our book by talking about the fate of the male chicks in the egg-laying industry uh, and likewise of the male calves in the dairy industry, who are, of course, the byproducts of the exploitation of their uh, female mothers. Uh, And so in both cases, you have an instance in which actually striving for uh, some measure of fair treatment of females uh, ben- would benefit the males. That's true. That's a good point. Totally fascinating. And all of these big ideas, when I think some people listening are like, oh my gosh, they're lawyers, are they going to use words I don't understand? No, actually, they use words that are understandable in very fascinating ways. This book is a real page-turner. I think a lot of people would say, oh my gosh, here are two subjects I don't want to think about. Don't make me read a book. But once you start, you won't be able to put it down. So thank you very much for writing this. Oh, now, thank both you. Thank the, you so the pro-life life movement and the animal rights movement, many quarters of, of both use really violent imagery. Just saying this phrase, I'm seeing images from both places that are just heartbreaking now, some people would say that changes hearts and minds. What do you say? Well, we think that the use of imagery, of violent imagery in both of these movements is potentially problematic and potentially a good thing, both from a point of view of tactics and principle. So on the principled side, we would say that, you know, the, the vegan movement is a movement against violence. And I think the pro-life movement would characterize itself also as a movement against violence. And so showing violent imagery to people is traumatic and can be traumatic and upsetting. And so we might say as a matter of principle, we don't want to show these pictures because we don't want to upset people. At the same time, however, we might say that, look, if you're going to do something, if you're going to benefit from 
committing violence, then the the cost that goes along with committing that violence is that you see what you're doing, that part of how we've evolved as humans to control ourselves, to, con- to refrain from committing violence, is that we see the violence and it's upsetting to us, um, and that otherwise we would do a lot more violence. And one of the things that makes warfare from a distance, you know, dropping bombs from the sky and things like that. So troubling is that we don't really see the harm that we're doing as we're doing it. It makes it much easier to do it and we're not we're not sort of paying the psychic cost. And so I think we would say that if a person is hurting an animal by consuming animal products, either the flesh or the secretions of animals, then the psychic cost of that is to see what it looks like in real life for those animals to suffer because of what we've done. And, you know, so from a moral point of view, I think that where we arrive is that just as if somebody were, uh, let's say, wanted to kill a person and said, well, I can't do this myself because I want to see all the blood and guts, so I'm going to hire someone else to do it, and then I don't have to look at it, we would say, well, that person is not entitled to shield his eyes from the impact of what he's doing. And similarly, we don't think people are entitled as a matter of morality to shield their eyes from the impact on animals of what they're doing. And I I suspect that the pro-life movement would say similar things about um, people shielding their eyes from the pictures of abortion. Um, At the same time, though, I think as a tactical matter, when people look at images of violence a lot, they start to become numb to those images, and over time, it doesn't have the same impact. So in a way, we have, we have a kind of weird sort of luxury living in a, in a time of factory farming where we have delegated all of this violence to other people, to a small concentrated number of um, you know, poor people who, who can't find another job and work in the slaughter industries. And so we don't have to look at it. And so that's allowed us to become sensitized again and to be able to to see violence for what it is and to become upset by it. But I think it's important that we utilize that capacity carefully um, so that we don't overwhelm people and then ultimately desensitize them and make them feel nothing again the way that people in, in cultures where animal slaughter is, is much more commonly done by the family themselves um, have managed to do. It's interesting to me, Sherry and Michael, when I was introduced to veganism when I was 20 years old, um, I was a young, liberal woman, <laughs> pro-choice and all that, and just assume that anybody who was avant-garde enough to want to be vegan um, shared that view. But I was met with H.J. Dinshaw, the founder of the American Vegan Society, and he was very much pro-life and believed that that was very much part of being vegan, that the idea of reverence for life that Albert Schweitzer had talked about was really central to the way he saw the vegan movement, and that was certainly how it was introduced to me at that time. And he did change my views at that time. And I'm wondering where people put these varying ways of of looking at this issue, and will there ever be an answer? Is there an ultimate answer that's right, or is this going to be something that people argue about until the end of time. So I think the, the la- you, you've answered your question, right, that people will continue to argue about it. Um, let me take a stab at that question by going back to something you said a few minutes ago, which was that you know, people might be put off by our book because we're lawyers and so they think the book is about the law. Uh, there's actually very little about the law in our book. We're mostly concerned with... Um, what the right answer to these questions is morally, and even not so much with persuading people that we have the right answers as it is about showing how these two topics mutually illuminate one another. Um, with respect to the, the actual position, though, um, our position in the book is that the basis for moral entitlements, a, a right to be treated as a, a having moral worth, is sentience. Uh, and so we think that 
most animals are entitled to moral consideration, and that fetuses past the point of sentience, uh, and there's some scientific debate about where that occurs, uh, are entitled to moral respect and therefore shouldn't be uh, badly treated or killed without an extremely good reason. And there is no good reason for the overwhelming majority of violence done to animals. With respect to fetuses, that means that we think that um, most abortions that take place after fetal sentience are probably immoral. Uh, There are some where a woman might have a good reason. But the fact that we think it's immoral doesn't mean that we think it should be illegal. There are a lot of things that people do that are immoral, like lying, for example, uh, or committing adultery, very serious things that we don't lock people up for uh, and say that that should be a crime. And so in, the, in modern America, to say somebody is pro-life is to say that they think abortion should be illegal. And so we think that takes an additional argument that we're not prepared to accept beyond the position we take, which is that we want to give very serious consideration to the interests of sentient fetuses for some of the very same reasons that we end up being vegan. What about having meat eating be illegal? I learned this interesting tidbit uh, from the late Professor Rin Berry that there was a period of time starting in the 600s AD in Japan where it was for 200 years illegal to raise livestock or, or consume meat in, in Japan. Evidently, this was the only time that this was ever illegal. Do you well, there's think a state in that's India a good now. idea? You know, so there's a st- I, think, I believe there is, a, there is a, one of the states of India now has made uh, meat, meat, illegal. meat illegal. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, we, think, we think that um, unlike with abortion where we are pro-choice, so we think that even in those very tr- tr- you know, troubling cases morally after sentience, we think it should be up to the woman. In the case of meat, in the case of animal products, we're not really pro-choice in the sense that we think people ought to have the choice. We're more, we're, we're sort of at this place where we don't think that it could happen, you know, in most places. So we don't think, for example, in the United States that that would go anywhere. The closest we come to making meat or any other animal product illegal is we, we say that cages have to be slightly bigger, you know, in a matter of five years or whatever. So I think as a matter of just practicality, that it wouldn't really happen. But if we lived in a world where there were sufficient number of vegans so that that could be a possibility, I think that we would think differently about that and we might well support a law prohibiting the use of animal products and and the slaughter of animals. That's such an interesting hypothetical concept. You know, one wonders almost in terms of a science fiction novel would would make them become... The new cocaine. <laughs> yeah, it might. Yeah, it's so there, there, right? yeah, there are tactical questions you'd have to think about whether you'd want to create a black market for meat, um, whether you might want to just make it, you know, regulated the way we regulate certain things that we think are harmful, like uh, tobacco and alcohol, without actually making them illegal. Right, it's possible. Although, of course, those other things are harmful to oneself in a way that, and here we're talking about harming someone else. So, I think once we recognize, truly recognize, that harming other animals is very much like harming other humans, we'd want to make it a crime the same way we make murder a crime and rape a crime. So, I heard the word tactical, and when I hear that word, I always think about violence and nonviolence. Now, you categorically oppose violence in the animal rights movement and the pro-life movements. Why is this? Well, we oppose violence uh, on principled and pragmatic grounds. We, uh, we're not across-the-board pacifists. That is to say, we think there are circumstances both in individual life, like, um, you know, a criminal attack, uh, where like self defense self defense could be could be right I didn't mean the criminal attack was the uh, permissible violence uh, or occasionally you know occasionally in international affairs where where violence and self defense can be justified um, so but when I say we, we think that there are principal reasons the, the the basic principle is that if one is going to engage in violence uh, to accomplish an end, you need an extremely good reason. 
And with respect to uh, both movements, frankly, there are nonviolent means of achieving at least the same end um, and maybe uh, doing so better. So, you know, uh, we think that vegan advocacy um, or adoption of uh, rescued farm animals uh, is likely to do more for animals than is um, any kind of violence. Yeah. Yeah, we think that we think we're big fans of animal sanctuaries. That they really, in addition to saving all of the animals that they save, which is a beautiful thing, they also serve the advocacy function that people can visit them and really learn about what animals can be when when they're not being exploited. We think that that's that that's very effective, and that as as long as violence is not necessary, we think that it's wrong. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. And having been brought into veganism by Jay Dinshaw, who was also a great Gandhian, the idea that, that veganism rises from nonviolence is the way I understand it. And so on those rare occasions when I see violence in the animal rights world, and it's very, very rare. I mean, I think that, yeah. you know, whenever you have any large group of people who are passionate about something, you're going to get all kinds of people and you're going to get some offense in that. I think we've really done extremely well in this movement to yeah. keep it kind, keep it nonviolent. But on those rare occasions when I hear about it, my heart breaks because it just sends a message that, um, that I would rather not be sending. So oh, yeah. How- Sorry. No, as a as a tactical matter, and Michael was talking about as a moral matter, but I think as a as a tactical matter, a strategic matter, it's absolutely against the interests of our movement to have people associated at all with any kind of violence. Um, that it is a peaceful movement; it's a movement against violence, and we and we want that to be understood by by its by the audience, the overwhelming number of people who are not yet vegan. So there is one argument that we haven't touched on yet, and that is the idea that death is a harm only to those who can form a life plan. What do you make of that? So this is an argument that you see in uh, various versions in the work of uh, some great philosophers of the animal rights movement. It's in Peter Singer, it's in Tom Reagan. They use different terminology. I'm not sure Tom Reagan would say that, but I think but it's, Peter, Peter it, Singer yeah, does. It, it, yeah. It's connected, but the, the basic idea is to distinguish between human beings who, it's asserted, uh, have a lifetime and animals who live in the moment. And um, I think it's false in at least three respects. The first respect is that uh, it's just not true that animals, uh, that the animals that are the subjects and are objects of our greatest violence live in the moment. They have, um, they live across time. Uh, if you think about a squirrel uh, burying an acorn for the future winter, that squirrel is contemplating the future winter. Anybody who's had a dog knows about how the how dogs anticipate things in the future. Like when we get home and things like that. Right. So, so that, that's not true. The second thing is it's not clear why having a life plan would be uh, a necessary requirement for any kind of a moral entitlement to continue to live. It seems to me the relevant question is whether your life is all things considered worth living. Uh, And if it is, who cares whether it's carrying out a plan? Most of the people I know don't have life plans. uh, I'm not sure I have a life plan other than, you know, to sort of go from day to day and hope things work out okay. And part part of the idea of the life plan for those who say that you need to have uh, you need to have the ability to form a life plan to have a right to live is that if somebody has a life plan and then you cut short that person's life, you frustrated the life plan. But if somebody lacks a life plan and you take cut short that person's life, then you haven't frustrated the life plan. But the reality is that if you kill somebody without any warning, then they don't feel the frustration of their life plan, whether they're human or non-human, whether they're capable of having a life plan or not capable of having a life plan. So we think sentience is really a much more relevant criterion for whether, not only whether we should cause pain to somebody, but whether we should respect that entity's interest in living rather than, you know, sort of extra cognitive capacities that 
humans and not even all humans have. That was my third reason. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, that's good. I, I love the husband and wife interview. We always get this extra lovely banter. Now, in the strategy chapter of, of your book, Feeding Hearts, you say, just as mainstream animal protection organizations like HSUS, PETA, and Mercy for Animals regularly promote welfarist measures, so too the leading pro-life organizations regularly promote legislation that prohibits some abortions or that limits some people, such as minors, from or some reasons, such as sex selection, for terminating a pregnancy. And this is very interesting because obviously, as a vegan and someone in the animal rights world, I'm very aware of all the arguments about that's a welfarist move and that's not far enough and you didn't go far enough. And yet I had never really looked at it from the point of view of another movement in which I'm not directly involved. This is absolutely fascinating. Can you riff on that a bit? So we, um, we weren't aware of that either, except as a theoretical matter. So when we wrote the, we started writing that chapter, I think Sherry had the idea that, hey, maybe there's something analogous to the welfare versus rights debate on the animal side within the pro-life movement. And then she did a little digging and discovered that, yeah, there is, uh, that there are people in the pro-life movement, uh, for example, who opposed laws banning so-called partial birth abortion, which is a method of generally fairly late abortion. Uh, and the reason they opposed it was they said, look, if you, if you go after this, or even if you go after late abortions more generally... That, the, that the message there is that the uh, abortion is worse the later you get, which goes along with the idea that really it's better to have an abortion than to kill an actual child who's been born. And so that betrays the message of the pro-life movement. And just as in the animal rights movement, um, you can see the logic of the, um, the sort of strong, more strongly abolitionist position. Uh, you can see the logic here. And then there's the tip, the same sort of analogous counter move, which is to say, right, but we're going to make incremental change. We're going to uh, raise people's awareness. And our view is we don't know. <laughs> maybe, maybe not in both contexts. Right. It is Although in the, in the oh sorry no go ahead no I was just going to say in the abortion in the abortion context the um, the one thing that makes the makes it sort of gives them sort of a luxury that they can decide either to um, oppose all incremental measures if they wish to or you know embrace those measures is that. People aren't as invested in abortion as they are in um, in eating and consuming animal products because they don't do it. People don't have abortions three times a day. You know, even people who've had a lot of abortions haven't had three of them every day. And um, men haven't had abortions at all. So unless they're directly involved in providing services, they don't have the same level of investment. And so you can afford to sort of be uncompromising and say, okay, just say no to abortion and potentially win over people. Whereas in the animal rights movement, it might be harder to win people over because they're so invested. So on, the, on that score, it would seem easier to stick to your guns in the, um, in the anti-abortion movement. At the same time, though, the opponents of each movement, if you think about that as a reason for deciding how to proceed, the opponents of the pro-life uh, movement are the pro-choice movement. And what they say is that a woman's body is, is something over which she is sovereign and also that an, a, a um, fetus is not yet a person. And so any kind of incremental change, any kind of incremental regulation you do of abortion is going to challenge those ideas, is going to say, hey, actually, it's not, it's already worth something even before birth, and oh, look, you're willing to pass these laws about minors and abortion, so obviously you don't think women have total sovereignty over their bodies. Whereas in the case of animal, um, uh, animal use, the um, animal welfare idea is very much in keeping with the opponents of the animal rights movement, the animal husbandry movement, or the, those who use animals. They say it's our obligation to use animals responsibly. So in a way, 
when we when we pass regulations, we aren't really chat. We're we're doing something that's very much buying into the way that the you know the animal users think about animals. That so we use them, but we use them responsibly. So, so in a way. Both, on both scores, the, there's, there's more, uh, greater degrees of freedom for the pro-life movement. And so in a way, that gives us the luxury of deciding, okay, so let's do what, what we think makes sense, um, given, given what we think things, things are like. But this is absolutely fascinating because I think for people who are very much involved in either one of these causes and perhaps don't give much thought at all to the other, we can learn from from these um, movements, both how to craft our own moral stance, but also um, a little bit about how we want to conduct ourselves in, in our own cause. I could talk to you guys forever. I love how you've been trained to make a point. <laughs> it's such a luxury. <laughs> the book is Beating Hearts, Abortion and Animal Rights. It's written by two of my favorite people, and certainly two of my favorite lawyers, Sherry Cole and Michael Bloor. These are beautiful people with a beautiful family of little girls and big dogs. And the book, quite honestly, is one that you will never forget. You won't agree with every page, but you'll learn something from every page, and I do recommend it. Thank you so much, Sherry and Michael. Thanks to everybody listening. And all of you people in the podcast arena of today and forever after, God bless you. Eat your veggies. Thank you for listening to Main Street Vegan. Join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time as Victoria Moran entertains, educates, and inspires you on your vegan journey. This program is sponsored by Main Street Vegan. To learn more about Victoria or to explore training with Main Street Vegan Academy as a vegan lifestyle coach, go to www.mainstreetvegan.net. That's www.mainstreetvegan.net. truly understand the laws of the universe and live a life based on these profound and unwavering truths, then your dream life starts today. No more waiting. No more wandering. If you're ready to let go of the striving and move into the allowing, you are ready for everyday attraction on Unity Online Radio. We study the teaching of Abraham given to us by beautiful Esther Hicks so we can release confusion for clarity, exchange struggle for serenity, and have the time of our lives today. Join host Ray Zander every Friday at noon Central Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Unity Online Radio for Everyday Attraction, where the law of attraction gets real. Peace in the presence of conflict. Love in the presence of hatred. Forgiveness in the presence of injury. These words are easy to say. It's challenging, though, to live them in everyday life. After all, I can make my words and actions peaceful, but I have no control over the words and actions of others. That's true, but think about it. If you... Then I, then others, one by one, responded in love in every situation. The effect would be like the wave you see spread across a sports stadium. It would go on and on, gaining momentum as it moved through the people around us. I can let peace begin with me. To find a Unity Church near you, please visit our website at www.unity.org. is the key to happiness would you like to find the fountain of youth how about all the money and love that you could handle well my friends it is there for you 
You just need to strip off the false beliefs that keep your divine inheritance from being attracted into your life. You need to be real. Be vulnerable. Be naked. What are you waiting for? Let's get naked. This transformational program with Reverend Heidi Alfrey is an invitation to explore and remove the blocks that keep you from emotional freedom. Listen to Heidi and her revealing guests as they embrace the power of spiritual nakedness as a guaranteed way to live an authentic and transparent life. Expose yourself to your greatness on Mondays at 3 p.m. Central Time. Let's get naked. No dress code required. Only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. You gotta get rid of your butt. It's bigger than it would appear. It hinders your forward movement when you keep bringing up the rear. Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Farber, and I'm an author, teacher, psychotherapist, and shamanic practitioner. On my podcast, Healing for Your Soul, I welcome some amazing guests and introduce you to some healing techniques like earth magic, working with nature and animals, and really getting to the heart of what is keeping you stuck. I want to help you deepen your spirituality and let go of blocks that are holding you back. Let me help you in this journey called life. Part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network, subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode.